Tonight on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. Is it a part one of a part two? I don't know. Maybe. All I know is we're doing this episode tonight, and we might have more questions that come in that weren't one later in the week. Hopefully not two more later in the week. Uh, I'm trying to think what I can tell you. Uh, I don't know if we have any IndyCar confirmations coming this week in terms of who will officially drive for what and where. I am expecting one, maybe two of interest on the IMSA front. Uh, So there's that. But yeah, going to try and put together a modest silly season update for y'all. Couple things I have been pursuing uh, what over the last week to 10 days and not saying it's going to be a giant update, but there's a couple nuggets and kernels of interest in there for you. So we'll try and get that knocked out within the next day or two. And what else can I tell you? Uh, boy, <laughs> my wife and I loved the heck out of having the better part of four days being stationary and yeah, went to her physical therapy today and just more kicking butt doing pretty amazing things by her. So, <sighs> yeah, happy boy. And thankful to you all for the fun questions you sent in. Doing a little charity fundraiser again for our pals at Racing for Cancer. That's the one founded by the Ryan Hunter Ray. It is a 501c3 recognized charity. The monies received go to fund a lot of different cancer research initiatives. And they also do some pretty cool individual support where needed for those who are fighting cancer and might have their finances knocked upside down. So doing that, if you haven't had a chance, you might visit at Marshall Pruitt on the good old tweeters, or if you happen to be a Facebook friend or follower, also posted it there. And it's the same thing like we did where you all helped raise about $6,000 in two, two and a half days in and around the Indy 500 in August for racing for cancer and this time it's going to be a little bit more straightforward for those of you who donated uh, $28 or more minimum of 28 uh, sent you a package with a bunch of stickers and maybe some buttons and magnets and who knows what all else uh, pretty much exhausted the variety of stickers so I have uh, just ordered and received some new uh, week in IndyCar stickers that I can send you, and also week in sports car stickers I can send you. Stend you? Or send you, whatever works best. Um, <laughs> uh, so restocked those, but I would say the real goodies that might be of interest for uh, you dear IndyCar fans is some teams were super helpful and super cool in sending over a bunch of signed hero cards. So I'm staring at a batch uh, Simon Pagano, Will Power, Joseph Newgarden, uh, Accurate Team Penske, both cars. Uh, they have their own hero cards. So one, Ricky Taylor and Elio Castroneves. The other, Dane Cameron and Juan Monterrier. Uh, the Toyota WEC LMP1 hybrid team. Uh, they have sent over some goodies. I got one batch of hero cards from them. It's signed by uh, Mike Con, or they're signed by Mike Conway, Kamui Kobayashi, and Jose Maria Lopez a batch of stickers from the other entry, the Le Mans winning car this year, 
featuring Sebastian Buemi, a guy by the name of Brendan Hartley, and also Kaz Nakajima. Those should be arriving here sometime soon to send along. And after that, what other hero cards? Uh, the Ganassi team stocked us up. Uh, Scott Dixon, Marcus Erickson, and Felix Rosenquist. Uh, Wayne Taylor Racing sent over some hero cards. Those are signed by Briscoe, Renger Van Zanda, and Dixie. And we also have a very limited supply. Probably going to hold those for folks who donate well beyond the $28 threshold from the McLaren Formula One team. Uh, so we have both Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz Jr. signed hero cards from them. And then I uh, included in what you might have seen or might be looking at right now uh, on the good old tweeters or Facebook that there's some apparel, some signs, some not, but most of it pretty darn rare pullover and jacket or two from Accurate Team Penske, uh, some signed hats, Felix Rosenquist and Marcus Erickson signed one after Felix won the race at Road America this year, his very first. Wayne Taylor Racing sent over some uh, kind of crew team shirts and some hats as well. And then beyond that, uh, there's some other layers. Uh, I tell you, there's some other layers. The McLaren Formula One team in particular sent some stuff, which I haven't included in the photos, but it's just, yeah, <laughs> uh, no disrespect. I really can't afford to donate much more than $28 right now, but uh, these are our three-figure donations minimum. Uh, and then I've got some other stuff uh, from Porsche that they sent, and holy cow, there's one item in there that, again, if I could afford it, I'd buy it myself, and it will probably go for many thousands of dollars due to the rarity of this piece. Um, got some more goodies in here. So, again, this is just the first kind of off-season charity thing. I know I've been mentioning doing this for a little while. This is the first. There will be one or two, maybe three more. Uh, I know my wife, uh, the f target of the first tier is, again, our friend Ryan Hunter Ray and his Racing for Cancer charity. I think the second one I'm going to end up doing is going to be uh, honoring and in support of my wife and her chosen charity. This will be a military support charity. I'm uh, going to be talking with our pal Graham Rahal in the morning to see if I can put the two of them together uh, to combine to work on this and raise some funds using some of the aforementioned goodies that I have uh, kind of tucked away. And we'll probably do one or two more uh, before the year is out. So maybe some of these things are for you. Gift yourself. <laughs> Donate to a good cause and just get stuff for yourself. Or if you have a loved one, maybe a signed hero card from whomever, whatever might be a, a cool gift stocking stuff or you name it so uh yeah doing that and uh you know i'm sure there are plenty of other things i'm forgetting to tell you but nonetheless uh here is our opportunity to roll in some music little bit of music bed and then hey you know what it's time to get going with your questions here all brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com and bell racing helmets USA. Surprise, surprise. We're going to open the show with a number of questions, all pivoting off of the frightening crash and fire experienced by Romain Groschon, who we wrote about last week on racer.com about being not saying he's the only person 
on the uh, AJ Foyt Racing Team's radar, but someone whose location is pretty close to the center of that radar from what we're told. Uh, he's also spoken with another team or two, by the way. But we're going to crack open the show here with, what do we got? One, two, three, four, four. We got a bunch of questions about this. So let's get rolling. Damien Hellwell. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Hellwell? Hellwell? I'm not sure. But says, long time listener, first time questioner. And I so appreciate you, Damien. And I wish more of you. And I know that there's thousands upon thousands of you who listen each week but don't submit questions as I take a deep breath. On Twitter, Facebook, or Reddit, the three places where we look each week when the call goes out for questions. And uh, you certainly don't have to, but I absolutely love it when we get a uh, long time, first time like Damien. And hey, Damien, you're starting off the show. So thank you. Seriously, thank you, sir. Says, will IndyCar look to learn any lessons from Groschon's crash? Uh, Is a process in place for sharing information between the different series throughout the world? Awesome. Awesome topic opener, Damien. Can't so much say about the throughout the world because we have a lot of series that maybe would not necessarily intersect with one another in terms of relevance. Meaning if a world rally championship car has a giant crash, is there something about that crash that would pertain in any way to say IndyCar Formula One? Hard to think of it uh, and how that might happen. But if we're talking things that are similar or related, yes, absolutely. So in this specific instance, know for a fact, because IndyCar president Jay Fry has told me about this many times, and I believe in some of the stories we've done together, that he maintains an active line of dialogue with a number of his friends in Formula One. Uh, from his time as part of the Red Bull, running the Red Bull NASCAR team, his relationships with Red Bull remain are extremely strong. Because of those relationships, we have the Red Bull Advanced Technologies built uh, or, or designed uh, aero screen. So that's not a coincidence. But we know for sure that Jay routinely reaches out to Formula One and his team beneath him on the engineering side and safety side are in semi-regular conversation with Formula One about crashes, about the halo, about loads, about lessons being learned, and it is a two-way street. So, again, just talking relevant series, speaking with one another, Uh, You will have a big crash using LMP2 prototypes in Europe, and it's not uncommon for that information to flow to IMSA, where LMP2 prototypes are used, or Asian Le Mans series, where LMP2, or European Le Mans series. Say the same about GT cars, Damien, where, again, where there's international relevance, absolutely normal for those series, even if they're rivals, Uh, to share information, and I would also say, even if it's in some instances not at the series level, you will definitely have something that takes place at the manufacturer level. If a Lamborghini, Audi, Porsche, whatever it might be, GT3 car has some crazy crash, and apparently the police are coming to get me outside, um, 
compared to inside, that'd be weird. Uh, it would not be uncommon for whichever manufacturer to distribute something that they learned to all the teams running those cars. Hey, we found that in this big impact that this thing broke or this thing happened that might need an update or you might never think to really pay a lot of attention to this, but please go check it because we found that whatever it was broke, cracked something. That's a bit normal. But in something like this, which is big, uh, this would definitely be something where IndyCar would be reaching out with sensitivity and in due time to say, hey, curious if there's anything you can share. If not, share your report once it's done, because we just we'd like to read it. There might be something that took place with your cars, even if they're, you know, different enough than ours but still a relatively lightweight, high-power, high-downforce, open-wheel car, which has custom halos. We have custom halos. We go one step farther with uh, that arrow screen wrap around it, but if there's something we might glean from this bad thing that happened to you, uh, we would love the opportunity to dive into uh, the findings. And so I could guarantee you Damien that will absolutely happen and in any of the incidents that IndyCar has had where uh, its aero screen took hits and weathered whatever storms that that information was if not passed straight away to those who might uh, have a, a curiosity it was certainly made available if and when asked uh, we're going to go to our pal Alexander Mack how you doing Alex he says, hey, MP, it's a miracle that uh, Groschon was able to walk away from that crash on Sunday. While I believe the aero screen is more safe than the Halo on track, I can't help but think an IndyCar driver would have, would have had a much tougher time getting out of an IndyCar in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. Having watched the ext- efforts by Romat to get out, he certainly had to do some wiggling to get out. I don't recall him getting out between the halo and the tub uh, and the, the side of the chassis, though. Now, if I'm wrong, I apologize, and maybe my eyes didn't serve me, but I still believe he had to go out the top, um, and provided that's the case, I I wouldn't really expect there to be much difference knowing that the opening... At the top is, I believe, a you know n- not significantly narrow on uh, the Delara DW12 chassis. We would be safe in saying that some of the IndyCar drivers, size-wise, width-wise, just you know shoulder width and such, probably I don't know if I would say dwarf Alexander, but. You look at a Ryan Hunter Ray, Graham Ray Hall, and those are not slender human beings. They're also tall, like 6'2", 6'3", 6-something, compared to most Formula 1 drivers that are relatively compact. So just sharing that, because if we were talking about one of our bigger IndyCar drivers in an F1 car, then yeah, I think it might have been tougher for sure but in our cars which are a little bit bigger they were intentionally sized 
when the cockpits were designed with the shortest driver and the biggest driver. So many of you probably know that Justin Wilson, our, our dear late friend, Justin was the big <laughs> control in that exercise. You know, Jay will was what? Six, four, six, five. I mean, I just, you know, silly. Um, and so, so tall, uh, lots of legs, lots of upper body height, um, you know, widish shoulders and such. And so these cars are designed to fit him going up and out along with uh, Takuma Sato EJ Viso at the tiny end. So that might just be something to consider. Um, trying to look here and see if there's some other questions about the getting out part before I roll this in. Um, because one of the things that I did and honestly it was just for y'all, uh, I'm not at least at the moment planning on writing anything about it, but I want knowing that there would be some questions about cockpit extrication, getting out quickly and whatnot. I reached out to, I think five IndyCar drivers. Uh, this was all not for print. It was more just, Hey, I know it's a sensitive topic and I, understand you probably don't want your name attached to it so if you could just share some insights about getting out with the arrow screen uh, i'll be happy you know i'd like to share those with our listeners uh, so i can give you some unattributed input from some drivers of all sizes and i intentionally asked a bunch of drivers who you know don't look the same some taller some wider some shorter etc um and there's some interesting responses. Uh, so in this, again, I know it's not specifically the question you asked, Alexander, but I thought uh, this might pique some interests for a variety of folks. Uh, first thing I'll mention, there is the cockpit exit test. And this is something that IndyCar has done for a really long time before uh, the arrow screen. Uh, just they've been doing it for a long time. I've had conflicting info on the minimum time. I'm sorry, maximum ex, uh, extraction time. This is solo extraction, no help. Got to buckle in, got to get yourself totally in the car like you would be racing it and then get out on your own. This is the maximum amount of time um, you can take. Otherwise, uh, you're going to have to keep working at it because you haven't passed the test. And uh, one person told me it was nine seconds. A couple others told me it was eight. So let's just go with eight because it's the shorter amount of time. Uh, That's the maximum. If you can't get out in eight seconds, then you haven't passed the test and you're going to have to practice until you can. I had one driver tell me that he felt if he really had to get out, cars on fire, a Groschon type scenario where the you are in the middle of a fire. The everything in front of your eyes is red and orange and yellow. He said he not only did he meet the uh, eight second maximum, not only did he get out in eight seconds or less to meet the requirement and pass the test, but he said he felt if he had to in a Groschon-like scenario, he said, I bet you I could do it in five seconds. And that's pretty darn fast. I had a couple of other drivers share some insights here, knowing, and I'll just throw this in, 
there were preseason tests, right? Got to got to practice first of all, uh, but then you also you know IndyCar is going to come around and ask you to do it live, um, in you know usually sitting under your tent or wherever it might be. Uh, but then throughout the year, IndyCar would also do randoms. All right, see you go, and make sure that folks were still sharp. I can't tell you if every single driver also received a spot test at whichever random event, but I do know that some of them told me they had to do them. Uh, let's see. One driver told me uh, I beat the time after a super hot practice session. Uh, they timed me with the air tube on, uh, one of the side vents, obviously the one that goes into the top of the helmet, belts attached, the uh, the head surround, um, and which locks you in pretty darn good like we discussed last week and this driver said uh who's one of the bigger drivers said it was no issue um had another one share just scrolling through my texts here um tested at the beginning of the season um let's see uh says yeah that that eight seconds is super realist super realistic meeting that or beating that time is super realistic and we're going to be doing a lot more testing uh in the workshop during the off season um let me find one more here and what did this driver say uh said did it once and it's not that hard to get out if you need to um couple other little things to throw in. Just found these little factoids to be interesting. A couple drivers mentioned the the pro tip, the hot hot hack to getting out faster is to reach out and use the center spar on the halo itself. So call it the the front leg of the wishbone. Uh, Haven't discerned whether it's using one hand after popping your belts you know undoing your belts and then you know i don't know if you try and reach up and undo your helmet uh hose and whatnot but basically once you're freed from the belts and have the ability to stand up uh the pro tip is to reach forward and grab the center spar of the halo and basically pull yourself forward and up and out so that is apparently the trick so one or two other things was shared and these are things that i thought about uh before asking and it was interesting to hear one driver mentioned that uh keep in mind that every driver has their uh, communications wiring done into their fire suit so this is basically the umbilical cord that you'll often see hanging from the driver's suit uh, around their waist area and that'll get connected to a, a obviously a connection point inside the car. Uh, that will then, when they're putting on their uh, putting in their earbuds um, and then putting on their helmet, they will connect that up. So you will have the earbuds um, should normally be connected to the helmet, but uh, that'll get your radio communication. That will get your accelerometers in the earbuds, which IndyCar uses in the event of a crash to measure the forces uh, being experienced on the body and such. Um, This can be a thing that, you know, there's usually connecting a drink tube of some form plus the helmet hose. 
So on top of the seat belts, you've got three other things at least that are kind of connecting you, tethering you to the car in some way, shape, or form. One driver mentioned that while doing their test, they successfully got out of the car in time, but ripped all the electronics communication stuff straight out of their helmet. And so that was a, granted, if the thing's on fire, no one's going to give a poop about, hey, yeah, you just, you know, sorry, it's going to cost you a hundred bucks or whatever else or to get that stuff redone or fixed. But the takeaway here, and I'll be looking forward to ask Jay Fry about this uh, when we speak here in a couple days, it is. So there's some customization individual preference type stuff allowed with drivers in the cars with this new air screen in place. So whether how the helmet hoses are connected, right? We've seen in some cases they were cable tied. I forget whether it was Marcus Erickson or someone else who crashed at the Indy 500, but there was a small fire on their car, but it was a fire nonetheless. And they went to get out and get out quickly. And, the hose on their helmet was whether it was a cable tie, whether it was duct tape, I can't tell you, but it didn't disconnect. And so it was a fight here's this driver trying to get out and their head is kind of getting pulled sideways because they're attached to the car and can't get loose. They were able to get away from the car. The hose kind of, uh, unwound a bit and that's how they got distance from the car. The reason that you had drivers whose helmet hoses were cable tied or super quadruple duct taped is because IndyCar threatened that, hey, we know that if you run without this, it's a mild aerodynamic uh, advantage, and we don't want that to be a thing. So if your helmet hose comes loose during the race, you will be black flagged, as most of you know depending upon the year and how the race is going, a black flag to fix your helmet hose can be the thing that takes you from being a winner to the biggest loser. And so team said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not risking it and went overboard. What I'd love to see, and I'll ask Jay about, is, hey, we did just witness the worst case scenario of a driver in a open wheel car with a halo and or potentially an aero screen wrapped around them. Any thoughts on standardizing things with breakaway capabilities uh, involved for everyone? So, hey, your electronics connect to the car, not only in the same place, but if a driver needs to stand up and jump out, there is the ability for that to disconnect on its own. There's a, whatever the, I don't know what the threshold would be. Five pounds of force, 15 pounds of force, something. Somebody who needs to jump up out of a car. I mean, every IndyCar driver weighs more than a hundred pounds. So pick the number, but something where, Hey, if you stand up, uh, there's enough tension on this where it disconnects on its own. It can't hold the driver in place. When it comes to drink bottles and the hoses that whether it's a cool clip on click in whatever type attachment, or in some cases you just see drivers with the hose kind of rammed through one of the vents in their helmets. 
how do we how do we standardize this so this is not a tether holding the driver's head in place while the dang thing is on fire and then finally same with the helmet hoses uh we know that there's i believe it's called the mag lock as in magnetic lock that you'll find used in some nascar and more kind of enclosed gt style racing is there a version of that knowing that in nascar and other places it tends to be bigger cooling hoses whereas in indycar they tend to be smaller is there a version of that that we can use that are smaller miniaturized where again a driver standing up uh, with whatever amount of force will break that magnetic lock something that's reasonable where they're not like spraining their neck to have uh, the two ends disconnect but how do we come up with a way where like the seat belts where you turn the cam on the buckle and it goes spring and crotch belts lap belt shoulder but everything is cleared away uh, from the buckle how do we come up with a system alexander where everything else that holds the driver into the car can be pulled away broken away snapped away with ease if a romain groschon like fiery scenario is visited upon them uh cable ties and duct tape and this kind of stuff it wasn't acceptable then i'm not saying that against teams i'm saying the draconian level that led teams to do that you know, we just need i think to think this through in a way where uh, this is no longer a concern because it was concerning watching some drivers trying to get out uh, in significant crashes at the 500. Last little thing, and this is very much an IndyCar dependent item, is the overhead air scoop that we saw appear middle of the season used at some events that forced air down into the cockpit. For some drivers, especially the taller ones, that is, it's a bit like, hitting your head uh, on the door or the door frame or whatever, trying to get out. Uh, that is something that as well, um, I don't know what it is, but there needs to be some sort of breakaway component where if that thing receives what X amount of force going up, which means a driver is trying to get out, um, either it breaks away. I don't know if there's some little lever arms where it just flips forward. Again, I, we have time, fortunately, until we go racing here uh, or even go testing two months from now or whatever it is. We have time. Um, but we need to figure some of these things out because the, uh, we'll kind of, you know, yeah, a couple little things to deal with, but, you know, uh, they're not end-of-the-world type things. Yeah. Uh, cannot leave those margins of error in place um, if we want to consider ourselves collectively uh, as responsible. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Northern Penguin 01 from Reddit. It says, after watching uh, Roman's crash, seeing how well the halo held up, I was wondering about the structure of the arrow screen. I believe one of the commentators said the halo is part of the tub of the F1 car. Uh, how is the arrow screen attached to the Indy car? Is it part of the tub or just bolted to the frame? I'd imagine the arrow screen is not a part of the tub as it was an add-on to an old car. That is correct. It is a bolt-on piece, Northern Penguin 01. 
But to my knowledge, and unless I am totally brain farting, which happens, as you all know, um, I am of the belief that the Formula One halos are also bolt-on pieces, uh, keeping in mind that the chassis are manufactured out of carbon fiber. Um, this would not be something that was somehow made in a mold with a titanium halo uh, as part of that structure. So to everything that I know, uh, these are items that do indeed bolt on and can then be uh, removed as well as damaged uh, or maybe as they reach their mileage limit, whatever those happen to be. So um, I apologize if I've gotten this wrong, but I've never known these to be uh, in, call it welded in place, bonded in place and and, uh, not removable at all from the Formula One cars. So where this is of interest on the IndyCar front is the items that were installed uh, in order to receive the halo loads. So the front, call it the uh, steering area and front bulkhead there, the dash bulkhead as it's commonly known, uh, that is certainly responsible for carrying a ton of load to begin with. This was modified to receive. Uh, there's basically a, a bolt-in structure that was added, and that is what the front leg of the the wishbone of the halo, that's where that goes into, just as it does in Formula One. And with IndyCar, uh, there is a different treatment to where the back of the aero screen, I'm sorry, of the halo bolts. In an F1 car, you'll notice that they slope downward and attach to the top of the tub, kind of driver's shoulders area. Uh, It also exposes a bit of the driver's helmet, while the front of the halo is higher than the driver's helmet. Um, It actually slants downwards uh, behind that. So that part is exposed. not a great amount, but enough. An IndyCar, there is no downward slope. It rises and absolutely flat from that point straight back and connects to the roll hoop structure. So this is another, call it built-in structure within the car that is already designed to take a crazy amount of load. So pre-Halo, this is something that is designed to Uh, support the car while upside down, take a big crash. Uh, This is meant to receive giant amounts of load. Well, this is where the aero screen bolts into at the back of the car, already designed to take those loads. So we'll just say that, you know, no criticism of one over the other, meaning one's better than the other. It's It's not the conversation we're having at all. It is just a case, though, of one series, that being Formula One, opting to uh, locate the rear legs of the halo in a different place than IndyCar. And with IndyCar's approach, at least, the driver's helmets are not exposed above uh, the halo or the aero screen. So, yeah, one, as you noted, retrofitted, never designed for it. But uh, we can say, having seen, not a, we haven't seen a, a Groschan level, level crash, but we have seen 
uh, at Iowa in particular, some pretty scary stuff take place and everything held up as intended. Um, we still have yet though to see, well, granted, are we going to see another Groschon like crash <laughs> in our lifetime? I don't know. Uh, I mean, that one's, that's a pretty unique crash, right? Uh, I thought of Francois Sever, who was killed at Watkins Glen, what I think in 73, Formula One, um, when his car in a crash went under an Armco barrier. And I probably don't need to explain any more as to what happened, but this kind of piercing through a barrier type thing, yeah, again, overstating the obvious, but without that halo in place, we're having a very different conversation and one that is steeped in sadness. And just for the sake of double-checking, dear Northern Penguin 101, yes, indeed, Formula One's halo bolts directly to the tub. It is not bonded. Uh, it is a removable piece. Uh, let's see. James P. says, I know it's not directly IndyCar, but is an Armco barrier meant to be pierced like that? Says, I'm no expert, but it looks like something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, another great point. And there was a, a quote expert who F1, FIA had trot out a quote and it maybe didn't cover him or themselves in glory. So I guess I'll answer this maybe in a bit of the opposite direction. Uh, well, no, it's not meant to be pierced like that, uh, James. But think about the the good fortune that was had by how the uh, the Haas Formula One car went through that barrier. Uh, the tub that Romain was sitting in went through that barrier. Uh, the halo, like a, I don't know, some sort of shoe spreader or something spreader, basically opened an aperture for the chassis to go through. And while whipping around backwards... Uh, it appears the force of the speed and whipping motion and the stuckness, not a word, of the tub forced the back of the car to rip away, uh, which we can assume is what caused the exposed the fuel cell and uh, ignited the fire. But that happened in a segment of Armco Barrier James that were between the vertical posts. So, again, if I'm talking luck, if that's even the right way to put it, um, you had Romain doing this thing we never thought possible of actually piercing through freaking Armco barrier and going through the other side while the rest of the car behind him was broken away. Um, that happened between those vertical posts, uh, steel posts driven into the ground where this would have me feeling far more worried since we know that the front of the car went through, and I know that's dumb to say, but it's, you know, he didn't slide sideways through the barrier. The front of the car uh, is what did the piercing. Had he hit the vertical steel piece holding up the Armco on the backside and it went down the middle of the tub, uh, if he'd been at another angle, 
and you know, with the bottom of the car slightly exposed or the side of the car slightly exposed and went into the armco at that vertical rigid point that it might've bent back a little bit, but it certainly wasn't going to split. Um, this might be a very, again, a very different conversation and a very sad conversation. So no, there is not meant to be going through the armco. Um, Got another question here from Jeremiah Morell on this topic, and I'll probably roll a little bit of the answer here, Jeremiah, into James's. So of the things that I heard during the broadcast while they were vamping and trying to fill time during the long red flag, it was trying to address and maybe do a little bit of soft pedaling uh, to shed some positive light on the FIA and uh, this circuit and the reason for their being exposed Armco barrier, nothing in front of it, no tires, no safer, no anything. Well, this is on a straightaway, and traditionally the straights straights aren't where problems happen. And so that's why there was this angled barrier, Armco steel, and nothing in front of it. This is one of those items, and it's not unique to Formula One. And this is where Jeremiah's question of saying, hey, uh, we find this at some of our tracks too. Um, we have this thing, and it's the hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, everybody is smarter after a big accident. It's a lot of that. But the thing that we often find like what we just discussed about, hey, all the things in the cockpit that hold a driver in and tether him or her that we kind of let people, teams, be individuals on and figure out on their own. Maybe maybe there's some things like this that really should not be subject to everyone's own take on things. We need to standardize things in the sake of ultimate safety. This is one of them. Uh, Jeremiah mentions, you know, we learned this week that there's no perfect course design. Even the FIA's most highly rated circuits have potentially fatal barriers. Says, do we expect to see the elimination of Armco barriers across high-end FIA grade one and two circuits in the future to be replaced with more modern, safer barriers? And if so, would American circuits like Mid-Ohio, Road America, Watkins Glen, VIR, or Laguna Seca be able to survive the financial expense of the upgrades? So this is the the ugly other part. If we're talking about last weekend's Formula One race in Bahrain, we have to believe that that track, knowing its opulence, knowing some of the other tracks and their opulence, there could probably be the monies raised to make sure that there's no such thing as a straight-up steel armco barrier to be run into anywhere do we have to believe that something similar could be done at many of our tracks where again you can say hey this is a straightaway there's no need Ah, we just (laughs) we just have the brand new thing we can apply to that argument it's called the romain grochon rule hey it should never happen here true Therefore, we don't need to spend the money on things that would 
give us a greater percentage likelihood of saving a driver's life. No longer true. Uh, Again, of course, we're so fortunate he lived, but how many of us saw that crash the first time, the second time, however many times, even today, uh, more than 24 hours later, and think, yeah, if it weren't for a crazy number of really positive things that happened in that crash, we could be preparing for a funeral. I mean, so just getting at the point here where I try not on this show to spend other people's money, but I can tell you that this is not a new thing. It's not a new concern. The how in the world did you hit that type crash? They're rarities, right? Oh man. I mean, we never in a million years imagined that somebody would name the thing. You know, there was a point in time that the entry to pit lane at the Indy 500 did not have big things put in front of it to try and help decelerate a car in case of a crash. Right. And there was a point, there was a point in time. There's nothing, no big containers filled with water, uh, a cushion type scenario, uh, you know, the ultimate safer barrier. There was a time where none of that existed where if you spun coming off of turn four, uh, you got tangled with somebody trying to dive towards pit lane, you could break yourself in half, right? And this is just a thing where you go, hey, we're doing 200 plus miles an hour. We can, and this is like a knife waiting to cut us in half. There's a point in time where someone said, yeah, what do you think? Now, do I remember if it took a crash for that to happen or not i don't but just the point being you go let's think of all the places where no chance anyone's going to get out there and hit that and guess what it happens (laughs) it absolutely happens and so that's why i just believe we have to start applying the romain grishon rule and it will be expensive and i don't know how it gets paid for but i do know that there's this uncomfortable agreement, uh, internal agreement that series make, tracks make, you name it, that say this this safer barrier stuff is crazy expensive. We cannot afford to outfit every barrier with it. But uh, how do we how do we identify the high risk areas that we never thought might be high risk before, and then use some strategy to you know, next month we're going to put another five feet and next month we're going to have a fundraiser to do another 10 feet there. If there is a genuine will, I'm positive this could be achieved. So the one that comes to mind road America was mentioned track that we all love. What was it coming off of turn three this year? That side hit between willpower and Graham Rahal that Graham took the hit uh, tried to correct the slide, overcorrected slightly, right? And there's no blame. I'm just trying to retell what happened for those who didn't see it. Uh, Graham got hip-checked by power uh, on corner exit. K- Graham was on the outside, kicked the back of his car sideways. He went to correct the slide and keep his foot in it and try not to lose a position. Ended up overcorrecting a tad bit too much. Car swung around the opposite way, he went flying off to the left. 
Now, normally as you're running down the hill, uh, turn one, turn two, whatever the turns are, uh, blasting down the hill, there's deep, long runoff area of sand to slow you down, and then also tire barriers, whatever it is, if you do actually get to hit something hard. So high-speed entry, if something goes wrong, they try and give you plenty of space and time to slow down, etc. Um, leaving the corner? Eh, not so much. Honestly, it's kind of the, hey, you're heading on to the straight. Well, by coincidence, there was a big cement block that was pointed at a whatever degree angle. And I think it was meant to be if a car went off in that area, well, that was the kind of access hole to a wheel the car back out of the way, something like that. I don't know. Or for safety cars, uh, you know, emergency vehicles to drive out of onto the track. Um, all I can tell you, though, is that this gigantic, heavy piece of cement jutting out from the, the kind of straight barrier uh, run down uh, towards the bridge. That's the thing that was sticking out. And so in the how you, we, boy, we couldn't imagine you could hit that. Graham damn near broke the car in half on that. I mean, it was a giant impact cost them. I don't know how much. And thankfully he was okay physically, but this is just one of those things where you go. Yeah. The areas where you think, ain't going to happen. It happens. So just circling back here, this is one of those items where uh, I really do hope maybe let's just take it all the way back to Damien's opening question. Things that were learned. You know, this isn't something that IndyCar would learn for the first time about um, Armco barriers and whatnot, but maybe this is something that accelerates an initiative to say to the tracks they race at that continue to have them and use them. Hey, uh, on your own or together, let's do a virtual track walk and start to point out some things that we'd really like to start cleaning up. And what can we do? Uh, Here's another, again, it's a dumb idea. I don't know if it has any merit or value, but if the cost of outfitting every track and this is an IndyCar show, so we'll just stick limit it to IndyCar. If traveling, if all the tracks that IndyCar traveled to and all those tracks on their own would not necessarily have the funding to outfit every stretch of wherever with safer barriers, is there a temporary approach that could be taken? And again, I don't know what the cost would be, but would filling a tractor trailer, an IndyCar tractor trailer, with whatever amount of feet of safer barriers that it owns would buy, again, I know I'm spending their money, but would filling a transporter with safer barriers that they bring to every track that is then installed at those tracks in key places, as many places as possible, where the track doesn't have safer barrier or can't afford to put safer barrier. Basically, like IndyCar brings their own safety vehicles and brings their own this and their own that, maybe this is something. I don't know, and I can't tell you what the cost would be. I know it wouldn't be cheap, but I know that if we're talking about a calendar-wide concern where too many events on the calendar have too many exposed things, 
it would be harder to expect, let's say half, I'm just making up a number, half of those tracks to come up with the funding to outfit their facility with the new barriers. It'd be a lot easier if IndyCar had a significant amount of their own to bring to fill in, put in place during setup days, and when the race is over, go and retrieve them, put them back in the truck, and bring them to the next place. Um, I would think of all the percentage odds, that would be something that might be easier to get done uh, in a shorter time frame. Uh, let's see, Cody Oakwood, you're asking about which track needs the most safety upgrades. I'd need to spend a fair amount of time running through each track to really try and come up with um, a proper answer, my man. Uh, I mean, I know that, yeah, there are some facilities, some that may or may not be close to me that are certainly uh, could go for some uh, modernization in some areas, but, you know, uh, I bet you I could say that about some of my favorite places that we visit on the calendar. Uh, Jake Ziller says, hey, MP, hope you and the wife and the furry kids had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife, she's not the wife, she's not a thing. Uh, Jake, and I know you didn't mean that, but uh, that's a little peculiarity about me. Um, yes, my wife and I had an awesome Thanksgiving. Um, and just need to reiterate that what that woman can do. <laughs> with adding spice and flavor to things uh boy she deserves all kinds of awards she gets every award i can think of uh jake says hey with that horrible accident in the formula one race really show the merits of having a safety car follow the other cars for the first lap when everyone is jockeying for positions do you think any car should or would have a similar system for the road and street circuits um also adds, not saying that our safety teams aren't among the best in the world already, but just my mind wondering, I suppose, you know, it's a great question. And I will certainly pose that uh, one to IndyCar when I next get a chance, Jake. It's been a standard practice in F1 for a long time. It's, to my knowledge, never been an IndyCar practice. Maybe there is a point in champ car uh, that I'm forgetting where they did it, but it can't hurt, right? And it's one of those, we hope there is never, ever, 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 ever a need for this. Um, but boy, in the one in a zillion times where we did or have, look at what it did. Uh, that's one of those arguments that's hard to shoot down, I would say only quote negatives I could think of is if there's a medical person in that safety vehicle that might be needed for something elsewhere. Um, what would the systems be or the processes be at a variety of the tracks that we go to if there is nothing on that first lap, right? But there is something on the second and who knows where on the second, but is there some form of uh, diving off place where, you know, is it Road America? I guess we'll go back to Road America. Do they dive off there at some point to not do the full lap because, you know, cars are pretty quick around there where maybe they have to cut off a couple of corners and pull in 
um, somewhere, or again, pick whichever track where maybe because of the speed of the circuit, they're unable to do a full lap and then come back to say pit lane. Is there a situation where they might have to pull off a little bit prematurely due to layout and speed? And is there some form of, you know, slower progress from wherever they pull off to get back to their primary station? You'd hate to see them again, it provided we're talking about a key medical, uh, person stuck farting around in the paddock, you know, driving through a paddock section, for example, at five miles an hour or whatever behind fans and golf carts and whatnot, uh, to get back to that key station. Uh, if there ends up being holy cow, maybe it didn't happen on the first lap, but on the second and turn three or four or five, there's some sort of holy cow thing where you really want that person to be there in an instant. I know that we have lots of amazing people in the AMR uh, safety staff. So again, uh, I can't imagine that IndyCar, if they were to do this, would do it in such a way where the one key critical person could be indisposed. But that's the only thing I could think of that might be a hmm. Uh, not totally sure if that how that would work out. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Jeff Zerneski. Hey, Jeff. It says, Marshall, hope you and Chabrell had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We did. It says, with all the talk about safety after the Groschal accident, what is the next area of the car racetrack that needs to be improved? Well, I assume we're talking IndyCar since this is an IndyCar show. Um, I think we kind of sort of covered it, my man. Uh, the What I'd love to find out or love to see is, hey, if eight seconds is the current maximum, what kind of efficiencies can be achieved to get that down to, as the one driver said, if my butt was on fire, I bet I could do it in five. Uh, what's the thing we could do to get it down to five or six, easy and consistently? Um, I know IndyCar teams have a lot of stuff to do on their own. I know that IndyCar, Delara, Red Bull... Uh, advanced technologies there's a lot of smart people involved with the halo and arrow screen i would just say though that like so many things in indycar if the series were to ask team its teams all right can we give you some homework during the holidays or, or leading up to the christmas break can we give you some homework and ask you to have one of your drivers to you know Give them some, give them some Advil, give them some something because they might be bruised up and lumped up. But can we ask you guys to attack uh, driver egress like you are the first person, you know, you're the first, we're having to go to the moon. You got to figure out a way. Only you can do it. Fastest, most efficient, the lightest, the smartest, the everything. Can we ask you to attack this, you know, call it project five for five seconds or who knows, but what can we come up with if we ask the mechanics who know the car better than anybody, the engineers who can think of all kinds of complex things better than anybody. Some of the mechanics are smarter than engineers, by the way, they can too. Uh, the drivers as well. Hey, drivers of all sizes, uh, help us attack this. This is all for you and us, but we trust me, we want to be the fastest ever. So not just the processes that you use to get out, reaching up for the center spar and the halo and pulling yourself for like, we want to know all the little tips and tricks that you do, but we also want your help in finding the optimal place to standardize this connection, that hose, this, this, this breakaway. Let's attack this. 
as a group. And I'm telling you, the outcome, Jeff, would be amazing. There's one angle to this that is the the greatest, greatest fear, and that is what if we have a crash and fire where the top of the cockpit is covered fully or enough for the driver to not really be able to get out. I don't know if and what can be done to arm the driver in that scenario um, to help themselves. We know that the AMR safety team has jaws of lives, giant cutting tools to cut away the aero screen, uh, the titanium halo as well. Um, we know that they have big, call it power tools to attack things externally. But are there any things that a driver might be able to do to create a portal to get out themselves? I don't know the answer. I don't think so. But that's really the one biggest, giantest fear. Uh, and just for the sake of visuals, it's it's easier to just say, imagine that there's a big crash and the car ends up upside down, like truly flat upside down. And there is no way for the driver to get out because the track is sealing the car off. If there is a fire, what do you do? Uh, And safety teams are always going to be there after the crash comes to an end unless you crash and come to a stop right in front of where they're parked. But for the most part, there's always going to be a reaction time. Now, again, just spitballing here, Jeff. We have this Halo device. Um, It is, I believe, 3D printed-ish. So it's not hollow, to my knowledge. Again, I could be wrong. But we know that, you know, in theory... They attach a lot of things to it. Is there the possibility for the cars to have true cockpit only showering down or up if needed uh, sprinkler type nozzles? Uh, Water? Again, I don't know what it might be. But I'm just saying if the true worst scenario is, say, Romain could not get out of the car and had to wait some there had to be people there to get him out while the fire was raging he's blocked in or an indie car the driver is blocked in for whatever reason we know that there are onboard fi- there is an onboard fire extinguisher you hit that it tends to have nozzles that go in a variety of directions engine bay right of course uh, at or near the fuel tank uh, cockpit as well just saying out loud since we've been able to attach scoops to the top and scoops to the back of the, the halo and arrow screen and things internally and whatnot, is there a option of saying, look, you might be in the worst scenario, unable to get out until we get there. If being trapped inside the car is the greatest fear, then is there the ability to have, I don't know what the number is, uh, a one-gallon water tank, two-gallon water tank, I don't know, in some form of um, 
uh, Kevlar encased tank that in theory can't really be pierced? Um, or is it whatever extinguishant spray that might be used, but something that, uh, you know, uh, I guess probably not something we would want to choke the driver. So maybe it is water again. I don't know, but I'm just saying if the greatest fear is having someone in a bathtub and someone putting a big old door or plate or something on top of that bathtub and the person's trapped inside, what things can we do to make that person drenched in water or something that would either put out a fire or give them more time before burns reach their skin? I don't know, but the idea, the very rough idea, Jeff, of some form of mount multiple nozzles in and around the uh, inside of the halo all with the idea of dousing the driver in water or something uh, or something that might put out the fire without it choking the driver. It seems to me like that might be something to think about if it hasn't already. Uh, all right, last question or two on the Romain Grochon topic, and it's taken <laughs> the vast majority of the show, but hey, uh as Juan Montoya likes to say, it is what it is. Um, Daniel Summerskill says, following his crash, do you think the chances of him joining IndyCar have now gone away? We have seen in the past drivers who suffer these big crashes decide to step away. Says Mike Conway springs to mind. I'd imagine family comes first in these discussions. Uh, our pal James Bethay. How you doing, James? Hope you and the family are awesome, my man. Says, uh, how much does romance crash now affect the IndyCar driver market? Just glad he is okay. Uh, and hope he still comes to play in IndyCar. Don't know on the plans and ideas and hopes he might border, guys. Um, that's ultimately up to him. I know that he's young enough, what, I think 34 or so, and lifestyle enough, meaning IndyCar, I'm sorry, racing is all he's really ever known, all he's done, that's been his life. I don't know if this has brought any kind of revelation for him saying, maybe I've had a great career. Maybe I need to consider something else. You could say, well, things would be safer in sports cars. I mean, what the kid replacing him this weekend, uh, our pal, the young pervert that is Pietro Fittipaldi. He broke his leg in how many places in a LMP one prototype? You know, in a, in a sports car, fully enclosed with a giant tub by comparison to an open-wheel car and crash structure galore. Our pal Catherine Leg broke her leg and ankle and all kinds of stuff in an LMP2 car in a big crash. It, again, in theory, has all, I mean, acres uh, of safety stuff compared, you know, to, to manage a crash and dissipate energy, right? So... We've had friends die in GT cars, prototypes. We've had folks suffer massive brain injuries, uh, massive you name it. Uh, our friend Mimo Gidley is still dealing with the effects more than five years after his giant crash, which broke him in all kinds of places. I mean, you know, yes, no argument that a 
routine crash in a sports car is going to be a safer thing than a routine crash in an open wheel car. But if we're talking a big one that is scary, uh, there, there's no magic that moving to like Mike Conway did, um, a primary career in sports cars is going to save you. Um, Mike obviously did a lot of road and street courses only had great success, won some races, uh, for teams. And that was all awesome. But would just say Daniel and, and James, this really just depends on romance. Take away from this. Hey, this sucked. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm burned. I'm probably going to have lifelong memories of this. When I just look at my hands, or my foot. It was strange, by the way, that he climbed out of the car. I didn't see too many people mention this. When he jumped out of the car, he was missing his left shoe. Uh, again, that tells you how rapid his uh, egress happened to be. But you know, he's going to have the the visible memories of this f- for the rest of his life. But I, the guy's a hardcore racer. I mean, he he's the one of the whiniest guys you'll ever meet. Uh, I should say observe. I've never met him. I've only followed his career for a long time. And, you know, there's that. But uh, this guy's a hardcore racer and tough. You can be whiny and tough, by the way. Um, This guy's pretty tough. And so I just uneducated guess. I think he's going to continue racing where that might lead him in IndyCar. I don't know. Where this could have an influence, this is the only thing that I, that occurred to me right after the crash happened, and that was he already has a reputation for a guy that is not always the best decision maker, right? Uh, he, he makes a lot of mistakes and has made a lot of mistakes for the majority of his career part of it there's also a pretty big upside that man when he is on this guy is on i just wonder if one or two of the teams that have an interest in him might have seen that crash and said man that's really the guy we were hoping we wouldn't get and yet 100 percent his fault no one else's fault purely his made a hard right turn thinking he was clear and wasn't insert ball of flames and holy crap what's the biggest fear we have at the indy 500 every year or texas or when we went there pocono or fontana it's the you're doing a million miles an hour and you think you can zoom around people and cut left and right and you're clear and you aren't cue big fireball and holy crap. Obviously big ovals. Well, all ovals, heck pretty much all tracks. Now you've got a spotter. So I get that. So in the absence of a spotter at Bahrain, uh, you know, which isn't really a thing in F1, obviously he, his own judgment was incorrect. Thought he was clear of a Kvyat wasn't crash. Um, we'd hope in IndyCar in ovals and wherever else that he would have someone in his ear helping him and maybe the crashiness would be reduced significantly. But yeah, my 
first and main thought, guys, was he already has that reputation, bit hair trigger, and did this just sour one or more teams to the idea of trying to sign him? Um, so, yeah, that that's the thing that I'm, I'm curious to find uh, if and what's come of that. You know, another thing I'll just mention here quickly, and maybe I'll throw it in the silly season piece too, but uh, had heard last weekend, prior to the crash, obviously, but had heard that Romain may have found some new sponsorship uh, that would be useful in IndyCar. Not Formula One uh, level sponsorship, but something that might uh, be attractive to an IndyCar team owner because all he's heard, to my knowledge, is we would love to have you. And what kind of money can you bring? Which would be a first. Uh, so provided what I was told is accurate, and he has found a little bit of money, um, that would indicate he is serious about IndyCar, and he has potentially found the thing that uh, teams really want and need. So there's that. Uh, let's see. Kevin Pinkston, you ask about... Uh, the process of egress uh, from the cockpit, which I think we uh, we kind of sort of covered ad nauseum. Um, let's see. Mike DiCardo says, MP, I watched the Scott Dixon documentary Born Racer over the weekend. It's very good. I was fascinated with Kenny Samansky's uh, piece about working with Mario Andretti and Ayrton Senna. Says, As a huge fan of Senna, I simply need to know more. Can you tell us about Kenny's racing crew background? I can tell you some about this. I will tell you that I have forgotten some, which is on me. So there's a rather famous photo. I'm forgetting if it was in Born Racer, but there's a rather famous photo of Senna's first win. Uh, this would have been in 1985 with the Lotus team at Portugal. And it's Senna pulling into the pits after winning. And I think he has his arm raised, kind of fist pumping in the air. And I think you can see Peter War, who's the managing director, team manager of, of Lotus. And there's a crew member jumping up in front of Senna's car. And he is just exploding with happiness. That's good old Kenny Samansky. Uh, tire specialist, been a tire specialist for a forever and that's the, the those are the services that he brings to Ganassi. He's brought them to a bunch of sports car teams, IndyCar teams, NF1 as well. Uh, from New York, very, very New York guy. Uh, quirky. I love quirky people. I'm not saying I love them at all times, but I love quirky people. He is certainly a man chock full of quirk. And he, in his small apartment in New York, I don't know if it's still this case, um, but this is this was one of the famous parts of Kenny. Um, he has slash had basically a miniature museum of Senna and his and Kenny's amazing globe trotting career, and yeah, and it was a thing. So if you were coming into New York for Watkins Glen, whatever, or an IndyCar race at the Meadowlands or wherever, um, you would make a pilgrimage to Kenny's apartment to look at his 
little museum of racing stuff. And yeah, it's just such a Kenny thing. I trying to think. I think it was 2007 or 2008 when he was working for the Taffel racing team in the American Le Mans series. Uh, that was being run by our pal Tony Dow. Um, and I believe Kenny worked with him at Tom Walkinshaw Racing as well, the uh, Jaguar Insta GTP team. I recall getting into Lime Rock for the ALMS race that year a day early. And one of the reasons for it was to film a little something with Kenny about his life and career. And yeah, so before I started doing that on my dumb little podcast, the My Racing Life and Career, blurp, 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 um, tried to do some of those kind of sort of with uh, videos and whatnot. And uh, I'm sure I no longer have the emails from him with some of the photos from his uh, little home museum. But uh, we did get into that. So maybe, maybe, maybe I can find that. I don't know if there's anything that it would be considered truly unique today. Um, but, you know, at the time, it just seemed like something I thought was a lot of fun and uh, maybe brought the awesome Kenny Szymanski to light um, to some new audiences. I don't know. So thanks for asking, man. That's uh, good on you. Good, good on you. Uh, let's see. Where do we go? Hire Lee. How you doing, Hire? You should catch me up, by the way, on your uh, Formula SAE uh, endeavors, by the way. So shoot me a DM and let me know what's uh, happening there. All right. Great question. Whatever happened to Katie Hargett? I liked her on the NBC broadcast, considering that she was one of only uh, one of our only full-time IndyCar pit reporters, and she seemed quite knowledgeable on the sport. I know she's at IndyCar doing pit reports for them, but what happened... I also remember her launching a program to bring young women into motorsport and motorsport reporting. Uh, I think that if she is still active, um, the Race for Equality and Change program uh, would partner with her and her program. Awesome question, Hire. So Katie no longer goes by Katie Hargett. Uh, She goes by Katie. She's now a double K. Uh, Katie Kyle married recently to Arrow McLaren SP managing director. What a heck of a title, right? Taylor Kyle, the good man that is Taylor Kyle. Uh, Two of them kept their relationship, you know, under wraps to the public, but on pit lane, you know, those two have been a couple for a while. Um, One of our friends of the show uh, told me about this uh, wedding that was coming up, which was kept secret. And so they've been trying to find a a spot in the calendar to get married. COVID threw everything upside down. And uh, dear Katie, who's been on the show countless times, I got to have her back soon. She's just a ball of awesomeness. Uh, It was so funny. I think I had posted a story. I don't remember when. It's a bit of a blur, but I don't know. Maybe it was August, July, September. I don't know. But it was, hey, hearing the mid-Ohio date is now seriously in question. And it was either the first piece on that or among the first items that said, hey, this date that we have thought was etched in stone is no longer etched in stone. And so I got this text from Katie. She was like, you know, 
I'm paraphrasing, but it was effective. Like, come on, man, you, you, this isn't real, right? Like, you know, the, the odds of this being changed are, are low, right? And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, pal. I don't think so. And she was like, you know, rigor, 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 rigor. you know, that was apparently um, uh, where the new proposed date, I guess, uh, that I might have mentioned uh, ended up landing on where they thought they had an opening to get married. So, yeah. Um, but what they ended up doing, which is kind of fun, and I know this is just, you know, whatever. Uh, this is not hardcore racing news, but who cares? Um, they ended up telling their friends that, hey, we're going to have kind of a, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, a, a bridal shower, bachelor party, kind of a, you know, but not, you know, not debauchery and whatever, but like, hey, we just want to celebrate this with y'all. So we're just going to have kind of a, pre-wedding celebration and uh we hope you know we really hope you can attend and when folks showed up they were surprised to learn that haha no this isn't what we told you it was this is the wedding and so they done got married so congratulations to those two crazy kids um as for what happened i don't remember the full story i just know that as I've heard from many, many people, if you are liked and loved and believed in by the senior most people dictating people's fates uh, on the broadcast side, you are the equivalent of a made member of the mob. And if you aren't, uh, boy, you can probably kiss your backside goodbye and she's not the only one who i looked at and said wow they bring something unique and or awesome or maybe awesome and unique to the show and i'm not limiting this to just indycar but as i would learn when person x was not invited back you start to hear some of the things where Someone wielding a lot of power said, eh, I don't, you know, I don't like the way they do this. I don't think this person knows that. Uh, whatever it is, there's a pretty harsh, if you tickle that thing that might have someone question you, getting out of those crosshairs is all but impossible. That's, that's a pretty hard it's a pretty hard thing to navigate, right? You'd uh, probably be working more to not mess up or give anyone the belief that you ever said anything wrong and ever spoke out of turn, ever got too high, too low, too like, yeah. One of the reasons why I have so much respect for those who have long careers in broadcast, often it's not at one outlet you know it's quite often hey i worked for this three-letter thing and then i moved to that three-letter thing or four-letter thing or whatever whatever you think might be tough for drivers and scrutiny that they're placed under i can just i can tell you as someone who orbits on the fringes of broadcast and does broadcast once or twice a year at minimum but rarely a lot more than that uh, who, yeah, 
the folks that you might hate on and say, I hate the way you do this. And, you know, you suck. And, you know, you could do better if you said this or said that, or why didn't you do this? And I know I'm that person sometimes when things are really bad. Um, Just understand that the, and you could be out on your butt uh, immediately thing is like always hanging over most of their heads. Um, that's not usually the case for drivers, um, to that harsh of a degree. Uh, I can just tell you, man, um, I don't know if I'd survive more than a year if I was doing broadcast full time because, uh, I'm a pony that doesn't like to be broken. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Will Velkoff as we get to the end of our quote primary show before we might get into overtime here we're coming up on about an hour and a half uh will young will says hey marshall another tech related question thank you and i love the tech related question folks don't hesitate to send those in whether they're like what you might consider to be really basic or whatever like send them in uh explaining and digging into indycar for everyone who might want to know more that's something I'd love to do with the show. Will says, we obviously see a lot of hashtag front nose wing flap adjustments. Why do we not see the same on the rear wing? Not allowed by the rules. Uh, would think the crew member responsible for the air jack could make the change if it was allowed. Well, depending upon the race, uh, there is. So little insight here, Will. So for talking road and street course, and short ovals, you will see the road course, the high downforce, hashtag front nose installation. So that has the main plane, the main front wing element that connects to, as I drop a pen, the uh, bottom of the nose and extends all the way out uh, to where it is capped off by end plates and Towards the outer edges, you will see a stack, an array of small wings, winglets, if you want to call them. And that cascade of wings, you will find usually on the top element only of that cascade, has adjusters that you can either increase the wing angle to make more downforce, which also makes more drag, or decrease. Those are used to tune the balance of the car at a pit stop. So rarely will you see a team crank in or out a ton uh, of front wing during a pit stop unless the handling is just diabolical. It's normal when you see a a driver on those road and street courses uh, go from the primary Firestones, which are just black, there's no color band around the outside, to the alternate tires which have a red stripe around them that tend to be a little bit faster but not necessarily last hold that speed for uh, as long as the uh, the primary tires you'll normally see when you have teams change from the reds to blacks blacks to reds there will be a complementary front wing angle change that is to alter the balance so Usually it's a little bit more wing going in for the blacks, a little bit coming out for the reds, 
up front, obviously, where the adjustments are taking place with the wing because the reds tend to provide a little bit more grip. Therefore, you might not need as much aerodynamic downforce to make the car stick. So again, generalisms here. On the road and street courses, though, you do not see rear wing changes in terms of angle because there are no adjusters because there are no real abilities to make, at least at the moment, a single adjustment on either side. If we look at the front wings in this road road and street course in short oval scenario, you have the tire changers make the tire change, will then reach over, it's in very close proximity, to adjust the individual element, the one on the left, one on the right. And I'm stating that for a reason, because at the back of the car, at present, there are full-width, full-span wing elements. There's the big primary element that sits relatively flat. It has the two uh, rear wing mounts that bolt to the back of the car, bolt uh, in place, holds that rigid. And then up top, you have the multiple rear wing elements, shorter, narrower, everything are ones that rotate upwards behind that main element. Those are full width, single pieces. That is something where there is no mechanism built into the rear wing end plates, no adjuster knobs to twist to either add or decrease wing angle. Could IndyCar, in theory, modify this so that for the upper elements, they are indeed split so that a left rear mechanic could, say, crank in two turns uh, to his or her side and the right rear mechanic could crank in two on his or her side? Possible. Just not something that is in place. Now, when we go to super speedway configuration, we go to a single element front wing. The cascade that dives up on both sides, those are gone. And in the middle of the nose, there is a single adjuster that cranks in more or less wing angle. And since there is just the single wing element, it is a global change. There's no left or right. It is just simply up or down of the whole thing. At the back, Will, there is a adjustment. There's an adjuster that is in place. This sits on top of the attenuator, by the way. This is where the rear wing mounts. Uh, there is an adjuster on the attenuator that is, or I shouldn't say on the attenuator, that's a part of the rear wing mounting plates and in the four locations where those plates bolt to the attenuator there is basically a bolt uh, and there's a threaded screw and bolt system where usually with a quick wrench that's the one with the little weird little squiggle in the middle where you hold one end and spin the wrench in one direction or the other that actually rotates the entire angle of the, of the whole mechanism. So it's not changing just the wing itself like you do with a front wing adjustment. This actually takes the whole assembly, the vertical mounts and the rear wing itself. And at the very base of this whole mechanism, you can either 
run the screw in or run it out and it will either tilt the wing up uh, nose up or nose down so that is something that is the super speedway equivalent of the front road and street course and short oval front wing adjustment so uh, to your point uh, the person manning or womaning the air jack at the back of the car would indeed be the person to do this because the air jack connection is right next to where this adjuster lives so great question seriously thank you will it's two uh tech questions in a row if you send in a third might have to have our man tim falkowitz who puts the questions together move that to the front of the list um you know should we have a all the crazy questions you wanted to ask but didn't or were afraid to and want me to disguise your name in the show should we have one of those episodes before the end of the year maybe we should i don't know uh i also wonder (laughs) how many of those questions i would fail uh to answer uh let's see where do we go for the final question here tim vaughn says mp your buddy jeff brown builds you a time machine because we all know he could but it only works to travel to racing events duh what events past or present do you use it uh, to witness firsthand says hashtag me personally would like to see the 1911 and 1969 indy 500s and le mans 1966 well that's awesome i feel like i might have answered this a little bit recently talking about uh, what i think the 1922 indy 500 to watch one of my heroes Jimmy Murphy win that, and then the 24-hour, well, uh, shouldn't say the 24-hours of Le Mans. The um, French Grand Prix at Le Mans in 19, or do I have my years off? Is it 23? I think Jimmy won in 21. Then, Anyways, it's either Indy 21, Le Mans 22, or Indy 22, Le Mans 23. I sometimes forget those. Uh, Jimmy won, was the first American to win a European Grand Prix. And I think the following year, the uh, Le Mans event turned into the first 24-hour race at that venue. Uh, those would be two for sure. You mentioned my pal, Race Engineer Supreme, Jeff Brown, by the way. And it took me a little while, Tim, to get the show started tonight because just before I was about to, I looked in my inbox and I have an email from Jeff. Uh, Marshall, uh, here's a list of some not- notable cars I've run and some notes on them. Also attached a list of most of the cars and drivers I've engineered in my time in the sport. Been keeping this for years and always amazed to look back and think, oh, yeah, I ran that guy or that car. Forgot about that. Um, this email came in to me at my request because I reached out to my old pal Jeff and said, you know what? Folks love you. I love you. We know that. It's a known thing. We get married, but we're already married, so we can't. Um, but you've done so many amazing things in the sport and you were a regular weekly guest on my inside the sports car paddock show, which I have done like one or two of this year, just not being in the paddock. Uh, it's made that a bit hard to get quotes for both myself and my sports car partner, uh, podcast partner, Graham Goodwin. So we haven't really done that show. Therefore hasn't really been an easy mechanism, um, to have Jeff on as part of a, a, thematic show so i just reached out to him and said all right so i got a thematic show idea you've engineered everything ever uh why don't we stop with stop or start with a top 10 list of the 
I don't want to call it favorite cars you've engineered, but the 10 cars that stand out the most um, for us to do a series on. And I know that there's more than 10. There's probably, knowing Jeff, and looking at that list he sent as well of everything's engineered, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to say. There's stuff, there's probably 150 cars, 200, I don't know. And stuff where I'm like, no, you engineered one of those? There's like an SCCA race truck entry where he engineered like one guy once and like, I got to find out about that. Um, and then he engineered this thing over here and I'm like, no way that car, that, that, that thing's like a unicorn. Like that thing only turned up for like one race, right? He engineered that thing at wherever it was. And then there's some other stuff too, where you go unbelievable, the amount of things that he's done. So I just said, Hey, let's just come up with a a list of 10 to start and we'll just do individual shows. And we're just going to have fun. And it's nothing but storytelling, uh, both the engineering side, but also the, the racing with driver X side. And let's just do that. So Jeff, because he's awesome, did. And so hopefully we're going to start this later this week and get a couple in the can and uh, roll those out because he's the best. Uh, he could absolutely build a time machine. He may already have. There's no way he's engineered all these cars in his natural lifetime going back in time is certainly a big thing for sure um you mentioned 66 le mans i would say i would choose to do the 66 24 hours of le mans to watch uh my late friend and hero dan gurney win along with aj Foyt. and you know we're just going to stay in 1967 because we're also going to go to spa to watch him win in the Gurney Eagle Westlake um, because that's also one of the greatest achievements by any race car driver in a two-week span ever, which I've written about, had him on the show. Uh, We have a podcast of Dan talking about the golden week of uh, winning these races back-to-back in 1967. So being there to see that, oh, that would be, uh, boy, that would be just amazing. So I think I'll just stick with that for right now, Tim. So if that's all you wanted in this week's Week in IndyCar listener Q&A part one, maybe there's a part two, I don't know. Well, that's the show. Thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. And if you wanted to stay on for just a little bit longer, I'm going to dive into super quick overtime and we don't have a ton here. Uh, we have two Dinner with Racers questions. Our pals at Dinner with Racers. Uh, that's going to be a Northern Penguin 01 to start. It says, in Dinner with Racers' latest interview with Eddie Gossage, he said Roger Penske extended his text to him with an emoji. Uh, which emojis are Roger's recently used section uh, on his keyboard? All right, now that's... I uh, haven't listened to the, haven't watched, I think, or maybe listened to, um, let's see, uh, of, Jesus, I'm trying to complete a thought here, of uh, Dinner with Racers. So let me, I'm going to, I don't know if, what I want to answer here, sorry if I'm stumbling a little bit, I'm trying to manage my diminishing brain power. Let me pull up um, last email or two 
from Roger Penske and see if that there are any emojis involved. Uh, no. On the last one. Um, no on the one before that. So I think we're determining uh, it must be a text thing. And I realize that emojis by email is not like a huge thing, but you'd be surprised at how many I get. Um, yeah, nothing uh, from, yeah, like the last three or four from RP. Let me grab my phone, and I'll admit that he and I don't text a ton, but let me see if I can add anything of value. Um you know, I'm just going to share this because maybe it's funny to somebody. I don't know. Uh, was had a conversation today with a PR rep uh, who I love, um, awesome person, and was talking to them about a couple of their new drivers who will be announced here soon. And in the conversation, I just found it funny because that PR rep said, um, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, yeah, I'll, you know, uh, going to look into this, going to do whatever whatever it might have been. Um, I don't even have contact info for, you know, quote, my new drivers. You know, I'm going to have to put together some press releases, whatever else. Like, I don't even have, I've never even spoken with them. I'm not sure I can necessarily spell their names um, the correctly. And I don't even have contact info for them. So it was one of those funny things where I'm like, well... Uh, let's solve that. So I just sent them contact info for their two new drivers. I just, I don't know why I find that so funny, but I was just like, well, I got them. You need them. Yeah, here you go. So anyways, not that that means anything. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at one, two, three, four. The last five texts from RP do not have emojis. So you know what this is telling me, Northern Penguin 01? It, well, it's not telling me anything. I knew this. This confirms this. This confirms how bottom bargain basement uh, I happen to fall on the emoji importance list. So no revelation here. We could have sussed this out at the very beginning. Uh, I just figured that since you're mentioning that Eddie Gossage shares that RP includes emojis at the end of the text with him, Eddie, obviously, far more important person in the sport than I, long-standing business relationships and all kinds of stuff with RP, so on and so forth. Um, I Again, I guess it just tells me that, man, i got to step up my game because through the variety of emails I just looked at and the last almost half dozen texts, not a one. So I can just tell you clearly I need to do a better job to earn RPs. Like, you know what he's getting? He is getting the eggplant or he is getting the palm face or he is getting, I'm just going to stop right there. I can't believe I said eggplant. Um, I'll tell you, by the way, this is just me kind of random. And maybe this is a special part of overtime where it's the full DGAFMP. Um, you'd be surprised how many drivers, um, also members of the media, but particularly drivers, 
uh, in text exchanges, I close things off with an eggplant. Uh, <laughs> just to leave them going like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know if that was a mistake or what he's got in mind for me. But anyways, and these are all men, by the way. I should be very clear. I'd never send that. I wouldn't even send that to my wife. Um, she'd kill me. But that we know that she's trained to do so and so far has spared my life. But, yeah, that's one of my fun little uh, send-offs. Uh, Ryan Terpstra. Hey, Ryan. Uh, another Dinner with Racers question. Twitter seems to have crashed, so I shall now submit this here. Facebook. Uh, with the release of DWR Season 2 on Amazon Prime, I got to thinking, if MP Podcast did a cross-country tour, would the show? what would the show's official vehicle be? Uh, I know it would be rolling on Cooper tires, but what monstrosity would MP be condemned to make the trek in? Hashtag Pontiac Aztec. Well, funny you should ask, Ryan. Um, not because I'm going to do this. Like, I love these guys. Uh, truly love Sean Heckman many, many years before dinner with racers was even a concept of his. I didn't meet Ryan until we did our episode until they invited me on in season one, uh, of the podcast, not Amazon prime. Um, uh, but knew of him and, and respected him beforehand and have come to love the guy since. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I have thought about, what if I were to do this? Because there are things, it's not dinner with racers, but there are some elements to it that would be, have some parallels. Like, hey, before the Corolla virus hit, uh, I had planned, hell, I tried to do this in 2019 at Long Beach, went down a day or two early and had a whole tour of interviews to do in the greater Los Angeles area. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. I'm still planning on doing it. It, That will happen, but there's a whole, I need to go drive around the Southwest because there's some people there uh, who I just need to, I need to spend a couple days with. Um, And so there's some aspects to that uh, that are just self-serving in, I can go get a bunch of good content and my wife and I can maybe enjoy some driving time and seeing some things. One of them, by the way, involves tanks and firing artillery and blowing things up um, with one guest who's actually been on the podcast twice, but I've yet to publish them. Um, Anyways, I could never do what they do. And it's not from a friendship standpoint, right? Um, I, the amount of time that they invest in driving around, that's the thing that I marvel in. And Maybe I use the excuse of being married and having responsibilities on the home front, even before we started this whole cancer thing. Like, you know, that's just not realistic. Hey, honey, I'll see you in six weeks. Um, So they have abilities to do things that I do not. uh, I don't know if I want to say I'm jealous of it because I don't know if I'd want to do it even if I could. But I do love their ability to say, hey, we're going to go all over the place to things that are seemingly random with people that you might not normally access and go capture some really cool stuff with that. Oh man, I'm super jealous of, uh, so of the many reasons that I love those guys and what they generate for us as for the vehicle. Well, we have a 2016, I think Mazda CX nine. 
and we love it. We absolutely love it. So it'd probably be that. And my wife would be the co-pilot because uh, I'd need to be there with her, look after her, and we'd, you know, all that. So uh, I'd say it wouldn't be something like cool and outrageous, either lame or great in terms of like, hey, you've got a Lamborghini SUV or whatever. Um, It'd be the same thing that we roll in, Ryan, because we know it, we love it, it works. And uh, yeah, so... I feel like that might have been a nosedive on the answer, but that's okay. Uh, Brett Keys, it's either Keys or Kai's, says, do you think an 18-race balance schedule would be a hit with fans? Six ovals, six roads, uh, six street courses. You could also have a mini championship built in uh, built into for each of those disciplines on top of an overall champ. Uh, ovals, let's see, we, go to, we have a doubleheader at Texas, Indy 500, Gateway, and then a one-and-another one-and-a-half-miler like Kentucky, Maybe an additional short oval as well. Uh, for the road courses, it'd be Barber. Indy road course twice. Oh, you're killing me here. Um, Mid-Ohio, Portland, and Laguna. Uh, and Street, we would have St. Pete, Long Beach, Detroit twice, Toronto, and Nashville. Uh, let's see. Love the street angle. Might convert Detroit from a doubleheader to... How about a Nashville doubleheader? One day, one way, one way, the other. That I'm all in for. I don't know if it works, but it sounds good to me. The road courses. Hmm. Barber, I love. Mid-Ohio, I love. Portland and Laguna. Indy road course twice, I think. Uh, I don't know if I'm absolutely falling over backwards with love for that one. Um, I mean, you didn't mention Road America, so that's maybe the only glaring omission. That's why we don't go to Indy twice in this plan for sure, Brett. Uh, if anything, <laughs> I think many, well, granted, one of the races this year at the Harvest Grand Prix was just amazing. But uh, I think if you were to tell IndyCar teams we're not doing the Indy road course, but we're doing a double header, or we're just going to Road America twice, uh, everybody would raise their hand. Um, the ovals, I, I can't, there's nothing really there to disagree with it's for a one and a half miler like Kentucky. Uh, I'd be curious to hear some other thoughts about one and a half milers to consider, uh, or I don't know, Atlanta is Atlanta one and a half or two. I forget only been there a couple times and it's been so long ago. I don't remember, but I do recall that place was just fricking rocket rocket fast in the good old Earl, the IRL. Um, yeah, so there's that man. Uh, love the majority of it. Uh, let's see. Indie fan 21. Hey Marshall, first time writer. Well, thanks. Indie fan 21 from Reddit says, hope you and your wife are doing well. We are whatever happened to Carlos Munoz. He was always lightning quick at the speedway. And I'm surprised that he hasn't received at least an Indy, an Indy only ride the last two years. What gives the story, as I recall it, and I'm sure I wrote about it, but again, these things fade a little bit once they're no longer relevant, to me at least. Uh, Carlos's father slash parents were the awesome financiers of his career. And the young Spaniard, who was very quick like a bunny, had some good opportunities, obviously, at uh, Andretti. I think when he was at Foyt, maybe not so much. Um 
but I do recall his father reaching a point where he said, okay, uh, I can, there's, there's not a bottomless well of money that I'm willing to spend here. So either you kind of make things happen on your own, right? Someone's paying you to drive or going to have to really kind of say, all right, we'll do this one more time. And you know, you can either spend this money on racing or maybe be smart and put it into a, you know, whatever kind of fund or basically willing to help, but that helps coming to an end. So you need to pick and choose whether it's racing and then having nothing at the end, or you try and take care of yourself a little bit for the long term. Um, I don't recall whether he chose the latter, but I just do recall that there was a, uh, the, the the funding is the family funding is coming to an end uh can tell you and i won't say which team because the inquiry was private but there was someone who reached out um who was trying to put together a list of really good drivers that a team should consider to hire and uh that person asked for carlos's contact info and this was two months ago maybe and so responded to that person and said yeah you bet um send it to you right now and so because i'm an idiot i went to my contacts pulled up carlos's name and instead of hitting the share contact option on my iphone however i did it i ended up sending carlos's contact info to Carlos with a note. <laughs> Here's Carlos's number. Uh, whatever I said, haven't spoken to him in a year or two. So I don't know if it's still good, but here you go. And Senate didn't think about it. Task completed. Got a text back from my friend who asked for it about a half hour later. Hey, MP, um, not sure if it got lost or whatever. Haven't seen it, but uh, if you could send me Carlos's info again, and that's when I went, oh man, what happened? So I went and looked and found out that yeah, indeed, I forwarded Carlos Carlos's info back to him, and so I forwarded that to the person who asked for it, and then sent Carlos a note that said, well, that's embarrassing. Um, by the way, uh, there's a team that could be interested in your services. That's the reason for me mistakenly forwarding your info to you. So if you want to call yourself and hire yourself, I'd highly recommend it. But kidding aside, apologies for being a dummy. Hope you are super well, yada, yada. And he just replied with a really kind note, as he always would, because he's a really kind person who's also stupidly fast. As for why nobody is reaching out and thinking of him, I don't know. I mean, we again, we know that one person did, but... Um, it's one of those weird things, right? Why isn't why aren't people calling Matthew Brabham? Why aren't people calling Tristan Vautier? Why aren't people calling Gabby Chavez? So on and so forth. There's just this weird thing of, you know, if you haven't been a cast of uh, the IndyCar reality show in the last year or two, um, it's pretty easy to get forgotten. So uh, there you go. 
Um, what do I think? I think we only got two more. Holy cow. This is going to be a short overtime. I love it. And we're going to end the show in less than two hours. Dang it. No matter what. Uh, Don Gregory, how you doing? MP, what sort of changes have to be made to VIR and Road Atlanta for IndyCar to consider these circuits as viable candidates for future appearances on the IndyCar calendar? Uh, VIR and Road Atlanta. Well, so that thing that we opened the show talking about a lot, and that is uh, things in front of hard uh, objects that stop cars uh there's that for sure uh some of the tracks you just mentioned of the two one makes prodigious use of uh armco while the other doesn't but the other also has some holy crap hard hard stuff to hit if again we're talking straights and that kind of stuff where uh yeah um vir is just i think would be a fascinating case study to have a team go and try, it might just be too much. Uh, it really might. Road Atlanta, like turn one, coming bombing down the hill uh, beneath a bridge, making the hard right, crossing straight finish, getting to turn one, and depending upon the downforce, potentially not lifting. I mean, come on. Like, you know, 8,000 miles an hour through turn one. Um, it's just one of those deals where that... You know, the going flat was done in LMP2 cars a little bit back in the latter stages of the ALMS P2 wars. But an Indy car, mentioned this before in the show, Don, a flat tire, a left rear flat tire entering turn one or a suspension breakage or a wing breakage like the circuit is based in Atlanta. It might end up in, I don't even know where, Louisiana, maybe Florida, possibly depending on the trajectory. Uh, by the time the car came down, um, these are just two tracks that are amazing. Amazing. I love them like more than I can even express. And in, seriously fast prototypes and gt cars it's maybe on a little bit of the upper limit of what you might consider like if a big one were to happen would they walk away throwing an indy car there like or multiple indy cars and with the propensity for people to run into one another and nudge one another and drive pretty hard bargains <sighs> nerf that's it, Don. We need to get Nerf to sponsor some of these tracks and just line everything with Nerf material. Uh, final question of this episode goes to our pal, Sean Starkey. How many 2020 IndyCar schedules did we actually end up with? I got to stand up to answer this because I just saw them over the weekend. I taped them on the side of one of my bookshelves, so I can't actually see it from view. Let me stand up because I did number them. I think I actually threw a couple away. I think it was seven. I think it was seven, Sean. Um, yeah. Would it be too soon to mention that, although I'm staring at the 2021 schedule taped to my wall, uh, I haven't had the heart to put a number one on it because I just, I don't want to process that I think I, I'm going to have to because there's going to be a number two and maybe a number three. So 
All right, y'all. I'm done. It's overtime. Uh, it's dinner time. It's 8.56 p.m. on a Monday evening here. I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast. Our Week in IndyCar listener, Q, and a, I think, part one. Uh, thank you to everybody for all the stuff you sent in. A lot of fun. And, man, um, hopefully the pretty in-depth stuff about Romain, cars, halos, aero screen, safety devices, changes, improvements, and otherwise... Hopefully some of that was uh, vaguely interesting. If not, eh, this this is my unpolished turd of a show. Uh, thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll be back to you here shortly with young Antoine Canon as our guest for the next episode of the Week in IndyCar.